The selection of texts today begins in Matthew 2, verses 11 and 12, and a few other texts. These are the words of God. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Revelation 21, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And then in Isaiah 49, kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. I pray that your spirit would be taking your word today and applying it to our hearts, our lives, our situation, to our understanding. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so we may see, really see these truths. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you've been taught to expect, look forward to, anticipate, pray for the progress of the gospel throughout the entire world. Now, the pro but what is that progress going to look like? As the gospel progresses throughout the world, what's going to happen? The progress of the gospel throughout the world is certainly going to have the eventual effect of making your neighborhood a lot nicer. But that should not be considered the extent of it. We look forward to the time when every son of Israel is at peace under his own fig tree, but there are also larger geopolitical issues involved. And those issues are directly related to what we are celebrating this Ascension Sunday. Remember the basic facts of the gospel, the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas time, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we mark on Good Friday, the resurrection of Jesus, which we mark on Resurrection Sunday, immediately following Good Friday, then we celebrate the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven and his enthronement at the right hand of God the Father, which is what we're marking today. And then in his first kingly act, he poured out the Holy Spirit on his church, which we're marking next Sunday on Pentecost Sunday. Those markers, those holidays that we mark, outline the, basic, the basics of the Christian gospel. The incarnation, the substitutionary death, the resurrection, the ascension, and then the outpouring of the Spirit. That's the objective gospel. Then after that, after the Spirit is poured out on us, we are equipped to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel, and then we're looking at the, uh, a different situation where the objective uh, gospel is presented, and then the people of the world, the nations of men, are called upon to respond to that objective gospel. Here's the objective word, here's the imperishable seed that can grow in your heart, here it is, do you believe? And so that's presented, and then the world comes to faith over time. So that's what we're doing now, we're proclaiming the objective facts of the gospel. Now let's consider these texts and why I assembled these particular texts together. The first text, the one from Matthew, is one that we're accustomed to refer to in our Christmas celebrations. You rarely hear the, everybody forgets about the Magi for most of the year, right? 
And then, and then once a year, we bring them out, you bring the nativity set out, and the, there they are. Well, uh, the Magi, the kings of the earth, the rulers of this age, are with us all year long, and so we ought to remember their place all year long. What should they be doing? Well, they should be bowing down before someone. Uh, kiss the sun, lest he be angry, we're, we're told in Psalm 2. So we're, we're accustomed to relegate the, the, the gifts of the Magi and the visitation of the Magi uh, to the Holy Family to just Christmas time, but it belongs to the whole year. It's given to us in the narrative of Christ's birth at Bethlehem, but the story, and this is important, the story of the Magi bowing down to Christ, bringing gifts to him, is a proleptic or anticipatory story. It's a prophecy. And, and, it's, and it's there in the, the text the way it is for a reason. Uh, the rulers of this age, the rulers of this world, the physical rulers, I'm not talking about the rulers of this age in a spiritual sense, not, not the devil, not the, not the demons, but the physical rulers of this world react to Christ in different ways. So you have, and when they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down. They fell down and they worshiped him, and then they opened their treasures, and they presented their treasures to him. In the next verse, you have the other kind of ruler, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. Herod was the ruler who wanted to kill Jesus because he saw in him a threat, and the Magi were representative of, uh, uh, the, we're not told that they're kings, they may have been, they may have been kings, but I think that they're, at the very least, given the nature of their gifts, they belong to an aristocracy, they are nobles, they come and they bow down to Christ. Those are the two choices. You either bow down to Christ or you try to kill him. That's, that's what it boils down to. So, this story is anticipatory. This story shows that God's plan for the kings of this earth is for them all to come before Christ, worship, bow down, and present their treasures to him. What Augustus did unwit unwittingly, what Herod rebelled against doing, these rulers from the east did gladly, and that was to serve the interests of the Holy Family. These men worshiped the Lord, and they brought gifts to him. Now that's what all the kings of the earth are summoned to do in Psalm 2, verse 12, and which all will eventually do. Revelation tells us that the leaves from the tree of life which grow on both sides of the river, will be readily available for the healing of the nations. The nations are going to have all of their disjointed, demented, crooked efforts healed. Sometimes it's going to be clear that when the nations are healed, they're not going to look very much like the nations we know very much, right? So, Revelation tells us that the leaves from the trees of life will be made readily available. I Notice I said trees. Uh, in the garden, there's one tree of life, but in Revelation, the trees grow on both sides of the river. You need at least two in order to do that. So you have the healing of the nations, and the New Jerusalem, which is the Christian church, the New Jerusalem is the Christian church, will provide light for the nations to live by. The New Jerusalem, uh, how do we know the New Jerusalem is the Christian church? At the end of um, Revelation, John said, the angel tells John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he took me to a high mountain and he showed me the new Jerusalem. The bride, the wife of the lamb is the Christian church. And he showed me the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. The, new, the Jerusalem above, 
Paul says in Galatians, is the mother of us all. The, the heavenly Jerusalem is the mother of us all. We're told in Hebrews 12 that we have not come to a mountain that can be touched. When, when we are worshiping here now, we have come to a heavenly Zion. A heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly Zion, a new Jerusalem, that is what we are. And we're told that the kings of the earth are going to walk in the light of the new Jerusalem. They're going to walk in the light of the Christian church. The nations and their kings will bring their glory and honor into the church. What the devil offered to Christ on that very high mountain as a bribe, we see that in Matthew 4.8, the glory of the nations, is instead brought into his church as a bounden tribute. In other words, the devil comes to Jesus on this high mountain and says, shows him the glory of all the nations, and he says, I will give these to you if you just bow down and worship me. It's not, often, it's not remarked on often enough that Jesus was tempted to become a Satan worshiper. Jesus was tempted to become a Satan worshiper, which tells you that Satan worship, the satanic way, is not a troubled Gothic, goth teenager with, uh, you know, drawing pentagrams on his bedroom floor. That's not Satanism. Satanism is glorious. Satanism is bright and shiny. Satan shows Jesus the kings, kings of the kingdoms of this world, and all their glory. Paul tells us that, uh, that uh, his, his angels are ministers of light. Satanism, in other words, looks good. Satanism looks respectable. The, the machinery of this world is satanic. The coercion that is, that is offered and the glory that attends that, that coercion, that violence, is satanic. It's, it's no good. And yet, there is a genuine glory there, and, and Satan offers Jesus this glory, and he says, I'll just give this all to you. If, I'll just give it to you if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said no, but Jesus did not say no because he didn't want that glory. What Satan was offering as an ungodly bribe, Jesus said, I intend to take I intend to conquer you. I intend to take the glory of the nations away from you. And then the kings of the earth are going to bring their glory and their honor into my church, my body, and they are going to offer what they're going to offer this glory as a free will offering. You want you want to be uh, you want to give me that glory as a slave master, uh, giving the glory to another slave master. Jesus is Lord, but he is a suffering Lord. He is the Lord who died for his people. He doesn't kill. He, he, he doesn't kill in order to win his people. He dies in order to win his people. So, what the devil offered to Christ on that high mountain as a bribe, Matthew 4, 8, the glory of the nations is, and nations is instead brought into the church as a bounden tribute. This all happens when the Gentile nations bring sons of God in their arms and come in carrying the daughters of God on their shoulders. They will support the church, not as lords over the church, but as sons and daughters of the church themselves. Just as Jacob bowed down to Joseph, just as the father bowed down to the son, so the mighty ones of the earth will acknowledge the wisdom of God resident in the church and will do so as they bow down. They're not bowing down to fellow creatures. They're not bowing down to ministers or priests. They're bowing down to the head of the church. They're bowing down to the Lord of the church. They're bowing down to the bridegroom. So, before the kings of the earth can recognize 
the great authority that has been bestowed on the church. Something else has to happen before that time, before the presidents and parliaments and congresses and United Nations and all those poobahs out there, before they recognize the authority that has been bestowed on the church, something else has to happen. The rulers of the church will have to recognize it first. We have to understand who we are before we can expect them to understand who we are. The rulers of the church will have to recognize it first, and they will have to repent of acting so embarrassed about everything. We are embarrassed to say, thus saith the Lord. We are embarrassed to say, this is the word of God. You shall not depart from it. We are embarrassed to say, you have to stop dismembering babies because God said to Moses on Mount Sinai that you may not. We have to be unabashed, but, 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 but that's the Bible. We don't accept the Bible. We don't accept your book. Well, that's too bad because Jesus said, you shall not. Jesus said that we're to go disciple the nations. We're to go out and disciple all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus said. So the church is not a social club with an interest in theological topics in which we dabble during the course of our Sunday meetings. We are not a special interest group. We are not a social club. We are not a voluntary association, and that's it. No, rather the church is a militant army that makes the gates of Hades tremble as though they were the gates of Jericho. And often, we have this effect in spite of ourselves. Most of the time, we have this effect in spite of ourselves. It's really interesting, because when Rahab comes out of Jericho, when, when Rahab is, uh, maybe before she comes out, she, yes, she says to the spies, when Rahab is talking to the spies, she says, from the moment we heard you coming out of Egypt, when you, basically the people of Israel, under the leadership of Moses and with God anointing Moses to do mighty wonders, the people of Israel left the superpower of that age a smoking ruin. Egypt was destroyed. Pharaoh's advisors came to him, came to him at one point and said, do you not know yet that e Egypt is destroyed? Don't you know yet that this is just a crater? Don't you know what they've done to us? Egypt is destroyed. And then the sea parted, and over a million people crossed through the sea. Do you think the word got out about that? <laughs> I suspect the word got around. I suspect somebody saw. I suspect somebody talked about what they saw. And then all of a sudden, Israel is out in the wilderness. And then Rahab says, from the, moment, from the time we first heard of what you did to Egypt, from the time we just heard of your arrival in the wilderness... We were afraid. And yet, why did Israel not invade Canaan as they were commanded at the beginning of the 40 years? Because they were afraid. All right? They sent spies into the land, 12 spies, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came out, came out and said, we can do it. But the other 10 said, we can't do it. We're grasshoppers in their sight. There's giants in the land. We can't do it. We are afraid of them. We just destroyed Egypt. We just marched through the bottom of the Red Sea. And we, here we are, and we can't, we can't do it can't handle it, too big for us. Rahab said, we've been afraid of you for 40 years, and the people of Israel were afraid of them for 40 years. That's the kind of thing that happens. We are in that position often ourselves. There's something in the, there's something in the carriage of this kind of authority that I'm talking about that makes carnal rulers shake, even when it appears that they are holding all the cards. Even when it appears that they are holding all the cards, it looks like there's something 
there's an indefinable something about courage, even raw physical courage, even just simple physical courage. Think about, um, think about Tiananmen Square guy in front of the, that row of that line of tanks. All right, one man standing in front of a line of tanks, and the tanks are all stopped. How? How did that happen? How? Did, why didn't they just run over him? Think of the waning days of the Soviet Union when Boris Yeltsin was holed up in his house. On the one hand, there was a Russian politician in a house surrounded by a nuclear superpower. And Boris Yeltsin won that showdown. How did that, how did that happen? Um, in the early days, in the 1600s, um, there was a wonderful Puritan poet named Anne Bradstreet. Uh, Anne Bradstreet was, uh, uh, well, she was very gifted. But her husband was Simon Bradstreet. And there was an episode in the 1600s, long before the War for Independence, where Governor Andros, the royal governor, was going to uh, put knock some sense into the colonists. And they had armed troops um, marching toward their objective. And an old elderly man, Simon Bradstreet, Anne Bradstreet's husband, appeared in front of them and commanded them to go home. And they did. All right, so you've got this armed group, armed group of soldiers and an old man who speaks with moral authority and says, stop it. You may go no further. And they do. So this, this happens on the physical plane. It also happens on the spiritual plane. When Pilate therefore heard, heard that saying, he was the more afraid, John 1980. Why on earth would Pilate be afraid of Jesus? Jesus is bound. Jesus is the prisoner. Pilate asks a reasonable question. Don't you know that I can have you put to death? Don't you know that your life is in my hands? When Pilate heard this saying, he was the more afraid. Why on earth would he be afraid? The kind of courage and faith that is involved in this kind of encounter is a mysterious blessing from God. Sometimes, sometimes we are putting the fear of God into others, into the inhabitants of Jericho, and we don't know it. We're, being, we're just as timid, timid as they are, but we're frightening them. We're scaring them. Oftentimes, a disorganized, disoriented, poorly taught church is panicking the rulers of this world in ways that we don't understand. We, we're having that effect in spite of ourselves. If that's the case, how much more would it be the case? How much more if everybody was like Joshua and Caleb? How much more would it be frightening to the people who are running the world according to their lights if we actually believed what the Bible says about us? This is a mysterious blessing from God that we should be seeking. Now, a robust eschatology a robust eschatology encompasses all of history. The end times, what we are accustomed to think of as the end times, are the last chapter in the story. So if you really understand the last chapter, you actually understand the whole book. So if you get the last chapter, if you understand how everything tied together, if you understand how everything comes together, you, that, that is an understanding of the whole book. If you understand the end of the world, then you understand the world. If you understand the end of history, you understand the point of history. And as God is the author of the entire story, God is the author of the entire story, beginning with the garden, beginning with the creation of light, and, and ending when everything is swallowed up in light, ending with, with the eternal state, which we cannot even begin to imagine. God is the author of the whole thing. And because we are his friends, he has invited 
us to read his story in manuscript well before final publication. You are a friend of the author, and he has given you what he's about. He's given you the story. He's given you the opening chapters. He's given you the end of the story. He's given you the, the whole thing in manuscript. And then at the end of the world, we're going to see the publication date. We're going to see the whole thing fulfilled. Everything is going to come together. We know the story. We know the outcome. We know where everything is going. We should stop acting like we don't. We should stop acting like they get to assign to us where we're going. They want us to believe and acquiesce in, well, we're headed toward uh, globalization is inevitable and a, and a state is secular state, global state is inevitable and we need to banish all religious extremism and that's where it's going. Isn't that where it's going? It's, repeat after me, that's where it's going. You, you don't want, how many times have you heard the phrase, don't be on the wrong side of history? What is that? That is a false eschatological claim. They are claiming to have an eschatology that they don't have, and they exclaim to be win they pro are proclaiming that they are winners when they are not. All right? If the rulers of this age had known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The eschatology, the whole arc of human history, is not going where they think it's going. It is not going where, they're, where they claim it is going. It is going where the Word of God says it's going. And you can sum this up, as one writer put it, you can sum this whole thing up in four words. We win, they lose. We win, they lose. And the they being those who set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, and those who submit to him, those who bow before him, those who render honor to him, are those who are welcomed and accepted. So we know the outcome. We know how it goes. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, it says this, For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So this is what we have. This is a glorious promise. These words were written and understood and acted on by the Apostle Paul who lived 2,000 years ago. Stoned multiple times, flogged multiple times, imprisoned multiple times. This man was irrepressible because he had read the entire thing in manuscript. He had, he had read the end of the story. He knew where it was going. That being the case, the Apostle Paul was clearly playing the long game. And because he was playing the long game 2,000 years ago, we have no business refusing to play that same long game. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. The earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14. And why? Because of what happened at the ascension. Daniel looked in Daniel 7.13. He looked and he saw one like a son of man and he was coming on the clouds of heaven and he came into the presence of the ancient of days. Just when, when someone, basically you want to make sure that your children understand this. 
When you say, what's, what's Christmas about? And they say, Christmas is Jesus' birthday. Tell me the Christmas story. They'll tell you the Christmas story. They'll tell you these elements. Ascension Sunday is, the culm- is right near the culmination. It's the penultimate. Um, Pentecost is the, the outpouring of the Spirit is the, is the final capstone of this glorious story. But here, this is where Jesus is put in a position to do what he did on Pentecost. So what happened at the ascension? The one like a son of man on the clouds of heaven was ushered into the presence of the ancient of days and he was given universal authority, dominion, a power over every nation, every tribe, every language, every group. There is not one place on this planet that does not belong to the Lord Jesus. It was gifted to him. And we do not, get, we do not have the authority to say, well, except for places where they have something like the First Amendment. Well, the First Amendment, first, the, the First Amendment doesn't say what they're claiming it says. And secondly, even if it did, it's foolishness. Even if it did, the Lord Jesus lays claim to every nation on earth, and that includes ours. So, because of what happened ascension, uh, on, at the Ascension, we know that this world belongs to Christ. So Jesus rose from the dead. You've heard me say before, if, if, if this world has a man in it who rose from the dead, who was dead for three days and came back from the dead, only one conclusion is possible, and that is that this world belongs to that man, whoever he is. Jesus came back from the dead, and so he ascended into heaven, and that's where God recognized that truth. God recognized that Jesus came back from the dead, and because he came back from the dead, he is You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Just ask. So Jesus comes into the throne room of the Ancient of Days and you know what he asked for? He asked for the United States of America. He asked for Thailand. He asked for China. He asked for Canada. He asked for Brazil. He asked for everything. He owns it all. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the fundamental Christian confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we say that, don't pull the punch. Well, yes, of course, Jesus is Lord of my heart. Well, uh, yes, I dare say. Good. But if, but if you limit it to that, that's a retreat to commitment. You're, you're pulling the punch. Jesus Christ is Lord of the Supreme Court. Jesus Christ is Lord of uh, Vladimir Putin. Jesus Christ is Lord of all of it. So as God gives opportunity... As God gives opportunity, and we stand before rulers and kings, we should be bold to declare what the Magi in Bethlehem saw at the first so clearly. We should be willing to give all our treasures to him. We should bow down. We should worship him. Why? He died for our sins, and he rose again from the dead, and he claims everything. And God honored that by saying, yes, this is my son. Hear him. Follow him. We should be willing to echo what Paul said to Agrippa. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God, not only that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, we're both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. So, so Paul was standing before Agrippa chained. He was standing before Agrippa bound. 
But the gospel that he spoke to the king was not bound. The gospel he spoke to the king was not chained and cannot be chained. Where does, when Paul speaks to a king with such authority, where does that kind of authority come from? It comes from the recognition that the Christ who was crucified was the same Christ who was raised, and the Christ who was raised is the same Christ who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he has been given blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Jesus has been given everything. So we should act like he has been given everything. So we surrender what we have. You realize that Jesus has been given everything, even those quadrants of this world that are still in high rebellion against him. Jesus is Lord of North Korea. Jesus is Lord of statist America. Jesus is Lord of all things, all things here and now. And so we, as his followers, must do what he says. We must follow him. And where, it's a, where the scripture says, you are to honor the emperor as, as the emperor, you are to honor the king as the king, you are to do all, you, you don't despise or vilify these, these um, kings who are in the process of brought, being brought to the point where they bow down. They are being brought to submission. And so we honor them to show them what honor looks like. We honor them because the word says to, because we want them to look at the word and submit to the word. And what that means is that they have to confess that Jesus is Lord. They need to confess that Jesus is Lord. This is why the Christian gospel is so politically hot. It's so politically subversive. The confession that Jesus is Lord means that Caesar is not Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Caesar can be Caesar, but he can't be Lord. Caesar can, when Jesus, when they tried to trap Jesus, they uh, said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, bring me a coin. So they brought a coin, and he said, whose image is on this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, why is that a crafty answer? You might, you might say he, he wasn't answering the question at all. No, he was answering it straight up the middle. If Caesar got his picture on it, you can give it back to him. If Caesar got his picture on it, it's lawful to give it to him. If Caesar has his image on it, it's lawful to give it to him. If God has his image on you, it's not lawful to give that to Caesar. To, God, to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, to God, the things that are God's. How do you identify what belongs to God? What has God's image? You do. Your children do. Do not render your children to Caesar. Do not render yourself to Caesar. Do not confess that Caesar is Lord. Caesar cannot be Lord because his, his image is not on you. His image is not being remade in you. We are made in the image of God. That was defaced in the fall, in our rebellion, in the crash that our first parents uh, engaged in, representing us all. And when the, when the human race rebelled, the image of God was marred in us. The image of God was marred in us, but not annihilated in us. In Genesis 9, when the death penalty is required for anyone who kills a man, even if an animal kills a man, the reason given, and this is after the fall, the reason given for the death penalty being applied is because man is made in the image of God. So man is made in the image of God. It's like a, a, a shattered image. It's like a shattered statue. You can still make out what it was. 
you can still tell the image is there. And then Christ was sent to restore that image, to have that image remade, to have that image rebuilt in us. But if, if you can look at a person and see the image of God, if, and you can with any person you meet, if you can look at them and according to the word of God, see the image of God there, then the fundamental rule is do not render yourself to Caesar. Do not render that to Caesar. And, and a corollary is you can, you can send him a picture, you can send him a, a coin with Washington's, you can send a coin to Washington if it has Washington's picture on it, metaphorically speaking. And you can't argue, well, if you give, if you give money to Caesar, you're actually giving yourself. No, because Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Anybody who says that Jesus is Lord and his lordship outranks the supreme leader, his lordship outranks the king, his lordship outranks the supreme court, his lordship is transcendent, is transcendent and is outside this world and cannot be reached by votes, referenda, cannot be reached by anything that we do. If, that, if, if we appeal to a transcendental authority, and we as Christians do, Christ, and we do because of ascension, the truth that's represented in the ascension. Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. There is no higher court anywhere. There is no higher court anywhere. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our lawgiver. Jesus is our King. Our Father, gracious God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we meditate on these things, as we look for places in our lives where we might apply, I pray that your spirit would point things out that you want corrected, that you want strengthened, that you want done. Father, we pray this looking to you, repeating the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says, you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Notice that positive command there, eat and be full. God wants his people to enjoy his good gifts and be satisfied with them and so bless him. And the clear implication is that God loves to bless those who are full of blessing. Do you want God's blessing? Then bless him for all that you have. Rejoice in whatever he has given. This isn't some kind of lever or mechanism, but it is a covenant relationship. When Abraham went through the land of promise, he built altars to the Lord everywhere he went, and he worshipped him in those particular places. Part of Abraham's worship at those altars was thanking God for the land before it had fully been given to him and his descendants. And centuries later, it's striking that in some of the very places where Abraham built altars, Israel won significant battles. In the very places where Abraham rejoiced, God poured out more blessing. God loves to bless in those places where we are blessing him the loudest. So every week we come here to bless the Lord, to say thank you for all that he has done for us. But do not be mistaken, God's not here saying that if you're thankful enough, you can have some bread and wine. No, God says here, have another bite. Have another bite of blessing. Eat and be full. Drink and be full. He simply gives. And why? So that we will bless him. So that he will bless us more. So as you come, thank him for particular things. 
build altars in particular places. Paint those targets hot with blessing. And so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended, he asked for and was given all of the nations of the earth. But you know what else he was given? When John meets him at the beginning of Revelation, he was given the keys of death in Hades. He holds those keys too. He is Lord of everything, even death, even pain, even suffering. All of it belongs to him. And one of the reasons Christians struggle with this is, you know, they love the story. love the story about old man Bradstreet standing down the army. That's great if it would happen every time, right? But what if they did run him over? The answer is, Jesus would have been Lord of that, right? What did they do? They ran Jesus over. And what did he do? He came back. Jesus is Lord of it all. He is Lord of all. He has been given the keys of death and Hades, and all the nations belong to him. Everything must serve him, and it does. So go, trusting your God. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds and the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, descend upon you and remain in your hearts always. Amen.